0: Straight from the hip, straight from the heart, with
1: Jim Chapman, on 94.9 FM, HRW. Jeff Summer, Robert Metz with us today on the program. Welcome to both of you. Mm-hmm. Last night on the TV show, I had the opportunity to interview a most remarkable young man about a most remarkable book. His, his name is uh, um, um, Ran Roel, and the book is called Yala which is a word that has uh, meaning in both uh, Hebrew and Arabic, means the same thing, let's get going. This book is the first edition, there's a second edition coming out shortly. And what it is, is students from the University of Toronto and McGill University who've written come together, three Jewish editors and three um, Arab editors, to... Published this book. It's called Yalla: A Reflection on the Middle East. Now Neither one of you have read it, I don't suppose. No. Um, I have been recommending that people read it and get a copy. I think go to their website, uh, Yalla Convers- Journalism. Yalla Journalism, I think it is. Uh, dot com. Uh, or give me a give me a, uh, send me an email here, and I'll put you in touch with them. What struck me as remarkable about this was this is a, an effort to bring together young people here. In Canada, from these two backgrounds, two very similar backgrounds, which is often lost in the discussion, two very similar backgrounds in many ways, um, that are diametrically opposed to each other at a at an institutional and state level. Um, and I had expected, when I read the story, I thought, well, this this is this is a nice story. Obviously, we've got some Jewish kids and some Arab kids, some Muslim kids. Who have uh, been able to set aside some of the prejudices of their parents and sit down together, uh, you know, maybe hang out together. Maybe the university atmosphere has sort of softened them. And university kids are often quite open to, to new things, new ideas, new ways of life even, new perspectives, new viewpoints. And I read the book, and the book is astounding to me. There's some wonderful writing in it, but it is still very clear in most of what I've read in it, which one are the Jews and which ones are the Arabs. The uh, the narratives, the Palestinian narrative, the Zionist or the Israeli narrative, very clear to see here. And this is in in, in, a, in a venture that was prepared jointly. All this stuff was vetted jointly by Jewish and Arab student editors. And yet, when all is said and done, what comes through this book still is the isolation of these two sides. Isolation or differences? Isolation. Isolation, because they do not appear to hear each other um, in spite of what we might have hoped. Now, I still do have hope for the book because of this young man, uh, Rand Gowell, who was on the program last night, who just radiated hope. remarkably uh, remarkable young fellow. He's a law student at U of T. Uh, Israeli born. Um and he tells me that there is hope that when politics are set aside the Arabs and the uh and the Jews involved in this project are friends and hang out together and vote for dinner together and and uh don't suppose they drink beer if they're good Muslims they don't drink beer but they you know, they hang out together, these people and he says, Yes, we're we're quite we've had some made some nice friendships here. And yet he said, That's as long as we don't talk politics. But in the Middle East you can't help but talk politics. So what do I want to ask you guys today? I was distressed by this and I thought about it a lot last night and been thinking about it this morning too that if we see an example here in a sort of a neutral third country like Canada uh, and, and, a, and something that was brought together under the auspices of people who really do want to reach out and begin a dialogue and they have begun that dialogue. I don't want to sound too negative here. They have definitely begun the dialogue. But the dialogue is still so couched on both sides with the self-righteousness of each side's cause and they're from my th- third party perspective there are flaws in the self-righteousness of both of them Um, it made me rather than fill me with hope it made me despair even more for the future of that part of the world I don't think we've ever talked about that on this program and I wanted to ask you this morning just whether you had any thoughts about what we're seeing over there whether there is any whether you see any hope or whether you have any ideas about how we might move towards it. I know it's a hugely complex problem, but I've been troubled by this book ever since I started to read it last night. And Jeff, I'm going to start with you. I know that you probably know as much as any of the rest of us about this. I think most Canadians know a fair bit about it. Maybe not so much about the history, but certainly about the positions that both sides have taken today. Do you have any hope in your heart that we're going to see any kind of resolution to this in, in our lifetimes?
2: yes i do and i think there are lots of examples where you've had um i i've, I've been impressed over uh, just kind of about history about how you can have people who are mortal enemies uh at one point and then are able to put it aside and i look at uh, for instance to japan and uh, and us and the americans at the end of world war 2 for instance and how quickly uh, what was what was a in a lot of ways a very brutal war Um, and and great hatred during the war. In fact, it was government policy to try and encourage racism during the war. We had the uh, um, the cartoons, uh, Mickey Mouse cartoons and so on, uh, talking about Japs and so on, and uh, trying to dehumanize the other side. And yet, within a relatively short time after World War II, it seemed like the states uh, were beloved by the Japanese, that uh, the Japanese people... You know really, really came along to them and and and, and vice versa as well there there's certainly it's a, it's an amazing thing about human nature that you would think that when people have have um, been wronged in a variety of ways, and, and inevitably it gets more and more personal. People have lost close relatives, they've seen atrocities, and all those things. You'd think they would just be, you know, uh, at odds for life, but but human nature has lots of example where people examples where people have come around.
1: That's an interesting one because one of the things, one of the comments that's made about the Middle Eastern conflict is there has been so much death on both sides over the years, over the last 50 years, that there are so many personal stories of loss, and yet the number of people who were killed by firebombs, by conventional bombs in Japan in the Second World War so far out, 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 outpaces anything in the Middle East, like on a factor of 100, 200, 300, I don't know exactly what the exact numbers are. Tremendously more people killed in horrendous ways. But in a much, much shorter period of
0: time that isn't protracted over centuries. Do you think that's yeah. part of it? That's, that's a huge part of it. And and you've got people there's a huge culture, culture clash going on here. Um, and You know, I hate to say it, but religion is the cause of more strife and hatred
1: than any other single cause I can think of. Well, and there there was no real religious content in the... American-Japanese war. I mean, they both they both professed their own religions, but there was no driving sort of, there was no religious pressure, perhaps a little more on the Japanese side, but, you know, they... they no, the
0: pressures there were largely purely political. Geo- geopolitical, geopolitical, yeah. yeah. Uh, you had a huge class between communism, capitalism, and fascism, basically. But, but
2: people aren't born with, with centuries of cultural conflict. They're born as as babies, and they learn it somewhere. And the question is sort of you know, but
1: as long as it's still that? being taught, well, isn't that one of the differences in Japan? Was that they stopped teaching militarism in Japan after the Second World War was totally, absolutely discredited. There were even there weren't even any fringe groups who thought it was a good idea. They've sprung up since then, but in the immediate aftermath, the, the whole raison d'être of, of Japanese society was shown to be and accepted by the Japanese people as being wrong, and then they went and built a new one. Well, that's a little different, spots, I think.
2: They certainly kept the emperor, and if the emperor hadn't told them to stop fighting, all that evidence... Indeed, that but he's going no going long, but he
1: is no longer divine. I mean, no, that's, that's a pretty right. major change. Well, that's true. I was thinking that. about
2: both sides, too, because in that war, uh, conditions for prisoners, uh, for allied prisoners of war were very bad, for instance. That there was, the Japanese were very brutal in the way that they treated uh, the countries that they had conquered at the time and so on, and it, and it seemed to go both ways that people were able to get past it. And you're right. Um, you know, you look at, uh, at conflicts that have gone for, on for centuries and centuries, and there's no glib, easy answer to it, no question. There are things happening there that I can't appreciate because I don't come from a culture that has that kind of enmity. Having said that, you know, in a tiny, minor way, when I was growing up, uh, the Catholics and the Protestants in my town fought all the time. You know, the Catholic schools and the Protestant schools, we fought... Because uh, that's just the way it was. Now it would, wouldn't occur to me for an instant. You know, I'd have anything against a Catholic. Um, things can change, but but on the other hand, I realize that the Middle East is something you can't talk about superficially because there's very smart people who have tried to work it out for a long time and have not been able to. And I can't diminish what they're trying to do.
1: We're going to pause for just a moment. You're listening to Left, Right, and Center on the Jim Chapman News Hour. Jeff Schlemmer and Bob Metz and Jim Chapman, and we'll be back after this on 94.9 CHRW. Bob Metz, Jeff Schlemmer, Jim Chapman, with you on the Jim Chapman News Hour, left, right, and center today. Guys, uh, and, and Bob, I want to come back to you here. You earlier alluded to the role of religion in this, and yet there's a case to be made that there's only that it's only religious on one side that it's cultural on one side and religious on the other. the there are an awful lot of apostate Jews in Israel. I mean there are lots of people for whom being Jewish is not about being religious. it's about it's about a heritage, it's about an, an ethic um, but they you know Israel I'm told I've never been there, but I'm told is a fairly wide open party hardy kind of country it's not it's not what one might think. Uh, a, a country would be that was founded on the basis of a religion. And the reason for that, I am told, is because it, it, being Jewish is a, a great part of that is cultural, not just That's religious. That's true.
0: And the government itself is very secular. Yeah. So that makes a huge difference. Uh, I, I think what you're dealing with is, uh, you know, you said just during the break that what do you do in an area when you have two sides that can't agree on the facts? Okay.
1: Yeah. There's, there are two uh, histories in the Middle East.
0: Sure. And, and neither side's going to believe the other. So, and they don't want to go to an objective court of, of, of law, which would be some other countries that might have a history, you know, an accurate history of what was going on. But that has to tell you something. To me. Uh, the whole conflict over there is deeply religious, and it only takes one person to start a war, one side that is, okay? The, the, the person in the defensive position has no choice, and shouldn't be judged in the same same way as the person who's taking the offensive position. There is an incredible intolerance, and you have to admit it, among many of the Muslim groups, for Jewish groups, for for other groups, and it's not just an intolerance of, uh, I don't want to be like them, but I don't want them to be on the face of the planet. You can't coexist with anyone who has that mentality. How is that possible? Well, what then, do you have any hope for the future? They're forcing us to do what we're doing. We're sending the troops over, and we've got to take care of it militarily, because when persuasion and reason fail, you're always forced to use force. And when you can't agree on facts, then you can't agree on persuasion. You can't you can't go back to reason but so how you're can
1: back you use the force of a gun how can you force someone to change their beliefs you
0: can't you can only it's just like trying it's like talking about putting somebody in jail and saying you can rehabilitate them that's the the the, the, the oldest myth i've ever heard i well, don't think uh, that occurs. Uh, you, you put them there to protect yourself are,
1: are there are there ways? Are there lessons we can learn from either Japan or Germany after the two world War, after the Second World War? Although they are, and people should note this, historians will tell you that there's a very distinct difference in the in the outcome the post-war era in those two two places. We sometimes lump them together as sort of the post-war miracle. Very very different societies. Very very different things happened. But if we look at Germany or Japan, both of which came through absolutely horrendous things far more horrendous and I say this with the greatest respect far more horrendous than either the Palestinians or the Israelis have suffered to date and yet within a generation had managed not only to to rebuild the rubble not only to, to, to rebuild their cities physically but to rebuild their National psyches rebuild their governments, rebuild their industrial infrastructure, uh, to the point where they both are industrial giants—not just today, but were industrial giants a a quarter century ago.
2: Absolutely, that that that
0: was the plan. You you turn them into free-market, you know, um, economies.
2: Well, I think you're right, Instead of a
0: controlled market.
2: As you say, you can't you can't force someone to change their beliefs at the point of a gun, but you can demonstrate an alternative lifestyle that may be more attractive to them. And that I think that what the West has done, sort of, certainly uh, talking about the post-World War II example was demonstrated a lifestyle, demonstrated a system of government uh, and a way of life that was attractive to the people who, you who know, were, you know, were invited to join it, and then they were given a meaningful opportunity to do that, you know, with the Marshall but Plan. But how can
0: you, you know, I see a, a tremendous, I don't know, what would I call it, hypocrisy in a way. On the one hand, people want to practice a culture that keeps them impoverished and then they envy the society that adopts a different set of values and as a consequence of those values rises to heights that mankind has never seen before i mean going to the moon satellites dishes things that that were beyond miracles never mind religion okay so you've got this culture and I'm not talking about just East cultures you see this in South America you see it all around the world and in fact the more religious a culture is the more impoverished it is the more uh, less able it is to fend for itself and the more envious it is of, of the
2: richer quote non so it's a matter culture. of also being demonstrating leadership by being humble and respectful because I think that uh, I've read at least that, that some of the uh, uh, Muslim uh, fundamentalism extremism is a reaction against kind of the western way of life and seeing it as as profligate and licentious, I, I, I and so think on. that's an
1: important distinction and to make too. That to, to say that a, that because a society was religious means it's backward in comparison to the Western secular societies may very well be true, but I don't think it follows that it's necessarily bad. Where you where the things where you talked about envy, where that en- enters in, that's a problem. Where your people well, suffer absolutely. as I a agree. result, that's, that's a problem. That
0: was my point.
1: <laughs> okay, so but you're I mean, not you're not saying that because a society is religious that it necessarily needs to be a failure. Well, it might fact, just be a failure by our standards.
0: In a free society, in a multicultural society, a true one, you can choose your lifestyle. And you can choose to be Impoverished, poor, you don't have to work, nobody can force you to do anything. I mean, you can practice the life of a monk if you want. Well,
2: then hopefully that's part of the attractiveness of, of uh, whatever it is, way of life that you're trying to encourage. And, and part of it, I think, comes back to trying not to be hypocritical, for instance, uh, trying to mean what you say and say what you mean, uh, trying again to demonstrate that there is a, a freedom to worship the way you want to, and, and there really is, that you're, you're not just kidding about it, that there are these fundamental values that we really do practice. And among them are, would have to be values to say, look at, for people who think that leading a really a life of of affluence is uh, contrary to your religion, you don't have to do it that way. You know, you're perfectly free to to live however you like around here, and we're not kidding; we really mean it. Um, but but it's it's so complicated. But it has been done, and it can but be done.
0: By the same token, they they judge you as being evil because you chose to lead a better life. And they think that because you're evil, you shouldn't be there, or that you should be preached against. Or you're, or you're well. That's what being, I mean. You demonstrate that you're not it.
2: evil. And you know, the children growing up, you know, they they have influences from all sides on them, but they really are a blank slate. And if they can see that the things that their leaders are telling them are just patently untrue, then, it, then it, you know, they're going to make choices. They're, everybody's got intelligence. And again, if they're if they've got uh, people telling them you should hate these other people because they're evil from one end to the other, and and they look at them and go, they don't seem evil. You know, they well, seem different than us, but they don't. That's precisely
0: why you need freedom, because I always yeah. believe that you can allow any idea to exist in a society as long as it's constantly compared to other ideas. And but totalitarian the societies eventually fall down, people.
2: though, don't they, Bob? Sorry? The, the countries where they try to have censorship, they try to have totalitarian, totalitarianism, historically in society, the sooner or later they collapse well, they're
0: collapsing. themselves. That's absolutely. That's yeah. I honestly believe that's
1: what we're seeing in the media. But why, why do like we? Uh, let me ask you a question about that, about the, the collapse of totalitarian states. One of the sh- more shocking elements of my couple of trips to Cuba that I made a few years ago, Uh, and, and I went as a journalist. I had a special passport, and we got to go lots of places where tourists can't go and so on. One of the things that shocked me was the bad condition of many of the roads, and we think we have potholes here, and it shocked me for this reason. It seemed to me that in a centrally planned totalitarian state, which Cuba ostensibly is, it should not be all that difficult to rally the folks in the neighborhood and say, "On Saturday, we're all going to go out and fill the holes in the road. In the very early days of this city, in fact, you are required, by virtue of your citizenship to turn out so many hours at too many hours a week and work on the roads. It's not Many people don't know that today, but that was the reality of the very early days in this and many other communities in this country. You were required to put in your time, and then after a while you could hire somebody else to do it for you, and then taxes came in, you just pay your taxes, and we'll hire somebody else to do it for you. But initially it was very much a community effort. And it it quite shocked me. I I had expected to see poverty. I understand that. I had expected to see shortages of materials. You might see buildings deteriorating and so on because they couldn't fix them. Maybe not enough to paint them and so on. But I never got over the roads. It's not that difficult to get a bunch of guys together with sledgehammers and a couple of steamrollers and patch the holes in your roads, particularly when they're not subject to the kind of deterioration we get here because of changing weather. And yet they could not seem to do that. And that... That went against my understanding well, of, what, of what
0: totalitarianism. You're, you're telling me that you're upset that the Cuban government didn't round up
1: people? oh I'm not upset at all. <laughs> but I think that's right. that is the
2: point that totalitarianism, totalitarianism ultimately doesn't have the support of the population, and they're limited in what they can do. And again, I, you know, in the long picture, the long view, I think that, again, a fundamentalist uh, uh, kind of um, um, totalitarian viewpoint in government is not sustainable because eventually the public won't stand for it. And uh, so they can try and keep walls up. They can try and keep censorship and all that stuff. But look at China, for instance, and the way it's changed. Theoretically, it's still a communist country, but it's, it seems to be among the most capitalist. There's a backlash bases.
1: there, though. There's a backlash no, developing at some very senior levels. Well, but it takes
2: time. You know, it doesn't happen easily. I, I still can't believe that the Soviet Union, you know, just sort of threw in the towel one day. Uh, you know, uh, amazing things sometimes happen, and ultimately, I think it comes down to goodwill. And the question is, how do you start?
1: We will pause on that, leaving that very provocative question for a moment, and return with more on the Jim Chapman News Hour. Bob, that's Jeff Schlemmer with us today. I want to change the focus just a little bit here, and uh, I want to talk about some folks, friends of mine, who went to Sudan. Dave Tennant and uh, Jeff Lang and uh, went to the part of Sudan where Jane Roy and Glenn Pearson have been doing work for such a long period of time, uh, uh, to use the old cliche, a war-torn country. They're on the, the edge of the, of the battle zone there. And Jeff and Dave were on the TV program last night, and we're both just glowing with excitement. At the thought that they might be able to do something to reach out and help these people. And they've got a number of projects underway, and they're back here looking for help from people, as you know, you always are. There's always more money needed. And that, you know, it got me to wondering if we look at those kinds of situations, there are so many places around the world that need our help. How do we, as a nation, or how should a nation decide what it's going to do? It's easy for an individual to decide what it's going to do. As a nation, for example, we still give, I think, about $60 million a year to the Chinese, which raises eyebrows on some people's part. We're just talking about what a tremendous economic success it is. Bob, what do you think the criteria should be for one nation to make the decision where it's going to share its bounty over all the places that it might
0: I don't think it's a business of any country to share share its wealth through force with any other country. I just don't. Um, I think that has to be a voluntary activity from ground zero up. Um, if a government had excess revenues that it raised through other legitimate means that it could put towards emergency, true emergency things like the tsunami or the uh, you know things that are actual, not normal day to day conditions. Poverty does not apply. Poverty is not something that happens in three days and goes away, like a fire Mm -hmm. or a flood. It's a condition caused by a political environment and to pour money into that environment without demanding that that environment be radically changed. I, don't, I know that's part of the attempt of some some uh, foreign aid, but unfortunately that's not where a lot of it gets to, and it's certainly not too much government aid as such gets to where it's often intended. It ends up in the pockets of uh, dictators, military, and helps to maintain the conditions that are, so, that are causing the
1: problems. So the, our, our, our focus then should be more on individuals getting involved in if, if you feel so. Moved? Absolutely. Absolutely,
0: And I think exporting the ideas that are necessary in order for an economy to work. I spoke to a fellow from Ghana once. Walk, he's a taxi driver here in town. walked mm-hmm. into my office and asked me if he'd ever heard of George Aidi, who I happen to know. He's the, basically the Milton Friedman of Africa. And he knows Milton Friedman. They work together at the Hoover Institute. And I asked this fellow, I said, what, what do you see as the major need of your country? You know, And I didn't know what to expect. I thought there was going to be some sort of... Uh, who knows what. But you Mm -hmm. know what he told me? He says, we need structure. He says, we need law and order. I want to be able to sign a contract and know that the guy I sign it with is going to be held to it. And apparently that's the whole problem. If they just had basic principles of law and order, of contract law, which you can't have in a communist or socialist country Mm -hmm. because that's contrary to the whole concept of contract Mm law. Uh, Freedom, the right to choose. You ask why they weren't fixing the roads in Cuba. Well, why would they? Why would I, if I lived as a Cuban, you'd have to pay me... Uh, for your own five, benefit. What's the benefit? I can't even leave the country. I can't go on a vacation. can't spend the money any way I want. Yeah, but Maybe you, at I can least buy more booze. At least
1: have a decent road in front of your house. Well, you that's go very to nice,
0: but there's nothing in it for me, and that's why you're seeing it not done. And well, I, don't, I, know, I,
1: don't, I, I, I couldn't disagree more. How can you say there's nothing in it for you? If the roads that you use are a mess... I mean, obviously, that's affecting your life. That's negatively affecting
0: your life. Fixing three potholes in front of my house isn't going to get me from here to Toronto. That's they don't go from here to Toronto. <laughs> well, but, it, but
2: it raises uh, even uh, more a, the point. We're, we're... A point about uh, about charity, though, and I and I agree with you and to this extent that I think that at any given time a country should be donating its charity to the place that its people feel most passionate about. Um, because ultimately charity is, is a passionate thing. It's not, a, it's not an inherently logical thing, per se. And it's uh, but also it,
0: voluntary. But, it's the but, definition but,
2: of charity. But what you said just now reminded me of Afghanistan, and uh, and the the mission over there right now, well, this seems to be twofold. First, is still try and track down Osama bin Laden, but the other is to try and bring some law and order to a country so that they can uh, rebuild after Taliban. And by definition, that's going to require fighting a lot of people, which is going to involve dying, mm-hmm. and yet... How do you start to have a society that's based on contract, that's based on certainty, until you do that? Um, and it seems to be inevitable. And, and I don't know if you consider our mission in Afghanistan to be a charitable mission, um, but, but it fits in with what you're talking about. But it's,
1: it's a warrior mission. It is a warrior mission. They're using those terms now. The Prime Minister has said, it's we a war. Here, we're because we're ready to fight. Well, we're going war. to fight.
2: And,
0: and, well, it always was. I mean, John Thompson at the McKenzie Institute always said this idea of uh, Canadian peacekeepers is such a uh, wishy-washy term. Peacekeeping
1: is war making. Oh, okay. yeah. Peacekeeping works if you've got two sides who don't want to fight. and right. the Peacekeeper's job
2: is to, you know, to stamp out the little yes. sparks. They're there are, like, there
0: on. are, yes, there yeah. are, there are, there is a specific definition, but this wasn't even close no. to it. No, but that Maybe raises the question of, of how
2: you decided on Afghanistan as opposed to any of the other countries in the world that had the same situation, and the reason I guess is because that's where Osama was. Mm-hmm. And that's you know, why we're there. Um, but, but again. Is it, is it not um, necessary if you're going to sort of achieve the things that you're talking about, that is where there's certainty and rule of law and the, and the ability to contract and so on, to have that structure, in order to get the structure, you have to stop people who don't want the structure, uh, who have a lot of weapons. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah, and and as much as like, without changing topics totally, as much as I'm not happy about uh, about uh, the invasion of Iraq, it seems to me that the invasion of Afghanistan was absolutely required after 9/11. You know, they had to uh, overcome the Taliban um, to to fight terrorism uh here and uh so I'm thinking right now but I'm not sure why there's a debate about Afghanistan because it's like we went in there to try and get this guy. We didn't get him yet. Uh in the meantime they had a lot of buddies there who wanted wanted us ill. We had to deal with them and we're not done yet. Well,
0: well we're making a big mistake if we think that's our goal just to get this guy. There it's not this guy is just the tip of a huge iceberg. But What we're after is trying to get rid of these ancient ideas that are making part of the world backwards while the rest of the world is going forward.
1: There was a wonderful quote from a young Canadian uh, corporal, a woman, a combat soldier, the other day when asked why she's in Afghanistan. She said, and I'm paraphrasing a little, because I'm seeing people smile who didn't smile before and I'm seeing children with clothes who were naked. And that's why I'm here. That's why I'm fighting. Gentlemen, thanks good both honor. of you for both thanks, for joining us today. It's always a pleasure to have Bob Metz and Jeff Stember join us, which they do most Wednesdays. Thank you for being part of the show. We will be back tomorrow, good Lord willing, at eleven o'clock in the morning.
2: I'll talk to you later.
1: When we will reiterate our promise, give us one hour, and we'll give you a whole day's food thoughts. time is Jim Chapman saying please take care of each other, mind how you go, and God bless. Bye-bye.